0: What is going on, mere mortals? My name is John Solo, and this is the Messed Up Origins podcast, the show where I ruin your childhood memories by revealing the truly disturbing origins of your favorite fairy tales and nursery rhymes. Now, this probably won't surprise you considering my line of work, but I often have trouble falling asleep at night. The goblins, ghouls, and demons that populate the worlds of folklore and myth also haunt my dreams and turn them into nightmares, but there are a few effective strategies for dealing with insomnia. Some people take melatonin, others huff paint, and some just lay there, staring at the ceiling until they finally pass out. As for me, I resort to a little trick from my days in the pen. The playpen, that is. I put one of my favorite nursery rhymes, Rockabye Baby, on repeat, and fall asleep thinking of simpler times when I could poop my pants without being told I have an attitude problem. Now, the point of me bringing this up is twofold. Number one, what I do in the privacy of my own pants is not anyone's concern but mine and my dry cleaners. Number two, after listening to the Rockabye Baby lyrics as an adult, I've realized they're weird as hell. It's a song about a baby hanging precariously from the top of a tree on what is apparently a windy night, and it ends with the baby falling to the ground and, presumably dying? I mean, if you take the lyrics at face value, that's really the only way to interpret them. So naturally, with me being the messed up origins guy, I had to do some research on this ditty and figure out where it came from and why the person who wrote it hates Baby so much. Well, big surprise, it turns out that it's not that simple. Not only are the origins of Rockabye Baby shrouded in mystery, but there's more than one theory about what the lyrics could really mean. So let's talk about my findings, shall we? As always, make sure you sacrifice the five star and follow buttons at least if you want content like this sent to your device three times a week and now the messed up origins of rockabye baby chapter one the birth of the baby so if you're a longtime viewer of the show, then this probably won't be much of a surprise to you, but just like every other classic poem, song, and story, there are multiple versions of the Rockaby Baby nursery rhymes. Some of them only change a word or two and others replace about 90% of the stanza, but what may be for the first time ever, the first version put into print is almost identical to the one that we sing today except for one big difference. See, back in 1765, when it was published in London by John Newberry, it was part of a collection of nursery rhymes called Mother Goose's Melody and went as follows. hush baby, on the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will come baby, cradle, and all. Did you spot the difference? That's right. Hold on to your diapers, but rockabye baby used to be hushabye baby, and the "by" in hushabye doesn't have an e, while the one in rockabye does. <gasps> I have nothing to add to this observation. The first word being different is interesting though, and what makes it even more so is that there's no clear indication of when it changed. But in 1805, another gentleman from London, Benjamin Tabart, published his own collection of nursery rhymes called Sonnets for the Cradle. And curiously, he included a poem that not only started with the phrase rockabye baby, but was also the first time ever that phrase was put into print. As for the rest of the poem though, that was completely different. Rockabye baby, thy cradle is green, father's a nobleman mother's a queen and Betty's a lady and wears a gold ring, and Johnny's a drummer and drums for the king. I know, right? You would think that because it started that way, it would be at least a little similar to the original, but the reality is it might not even be connected to it. And as a matter of fact, it's not the only one of its kind either. There's rhymes in lullaby of an instant chief and traditional nursery songs that both seem to have just a touch of overlap with John Newberry's version, but then go off in completely different directions. The fact of the matter is after its initial release, no one knows exactly when the Rockabout phrase became a staple of the poem or how the poem itself got so well-known because there's no clear lineage to trace after that. But an important detail to note is that in 1785, 20 years after Newberry released Mother Goose's melody in London, the collection was published in Boston, Massachusetts. And from there, the path to popularity becomes a little more clear. Cause you see, there are two things that need to be traced when looking for the origins of a nursery rhyme, the source of the lyrics and the source of the melody. And while we already know the original lyrics come from London some folklorists credit an American minstrel group called the Moore and Burgess Minstrels with popularizing the Rockabye variation in the modern melody we sing. And that's because there's an article in the September 18th, 1887 edition of the London Times that advertises the Moore and Burgess Minstrels performing the great American song of Rockabye. And the song was obviously a big hit because not even two months later, the same newspaper promises the new and charming American ballad called Rockabye, which has achieved an extraordinary degree of popularity in all the cities of America will be sung at every performance at St. James's Hall. Now, unfortunately, we have no way of confirming if the version they performed is the one that we all know, but there is only one song with Rockabye in the title that every American truly knows, and it's not the one with Sean Paul in it. So unless that newspaper was just trying to hype up their song to a ridiculous degree, that may very well have been the lullaby. But just because they popularized the melody across the pond doesn't mean they wrote it. After all, the London Times did say the song was already popular here in America. And actually, after doing some digging, I discovered that the New York Times has credited two individuals as the original composers, both in their obituaries. Yes, I spent my time off recovering from COVID reading obituaries from the 1900s, What was I supposed to do? The first one it gives credit to is a Boston resident named Charles Dupree Blake, who passed away in 1903 at the age of 56. And it's actually a pretty short entry, but right there in the last paragraph, it specifically says, Mr. Blake composed more than 5,000 songs and pieces of music. Probably his best known work is Rockaby Baby. But a few decades later in 1940, the Times gives credit to another Boston resident, Mrs. Effie Carlton, an actress best known by her stage name Effie Canning, though she had a number of other monikers. So which one was it you ask? Well, it turns out it may have been both of them. No! No! Relax, Will, let me explain. You see, if one actually reads her entire obituary, the story of how Effie came up with the melody is revealed. According to her, she wrote the song in 1886 at the age of 13 while visiting some family friends. While she was reading on the porch, she saw the woman they were visiting set her baby on a hammock that gently rocked it to sleep and walk away. A few minutes later, the baby started to stir and Effie went to check on it and it was allegedly at this moment that she thought of the classic Mother Goose poem and started humming her own version of the tune. Then, a few months later, she was given a banjo for Christmas, probably the most random instrument she could have been given, and after learning the basics, she played the tune that she hummed for the baby. Well, after hearing this, her music teacher just flipped his... He thought it was a wonderful ditty and sent her to a publisher friend of his, the aforementioned Charles Dupree Blake, who also loved it. Blake asked Effie for her permission to publish the song, but since she was so young, she was afraid that her father wouldn't approve. So instead of using her real name, Effie Crockett, she used her grandma's maiden name, Canning, which went on to become her stage name after she took up acting. And to those wondering, yes, she's related to Davy Crockett. They're actually cousins. Now, originally Effie didn't want her name attached to the song at all, but that changed when it got wildly popular and Charles Blake started making money by selling the sheet music and the rights to perform it on stage. Sad that we don't know if he ever sold those rights to the Moore and Burgess minstrels, but I checked and the timeline does work. That article about them in the London Times was from the end of 1887 and Ellie would have met Charles Blake in the first quarter of that same year. Now, unlike our last episode of Nursery Rhymes Explained, where we had some very unsubstantiated claims from the woman who said she was the inspiration for Mary Had a Little Lamb, I don't think Effie is blowing smoke here. The documentation, is a little on the light side, that's for sure, but there's nothing about her story that contradicts anyone else's claims, nor has anyone ever stepped up to call her out. On top of that, the New York Times also says that in 1939, Effie appealed to Congress for renewal of the copyright on the song, which had already been renewed twice by Blake. The reason she had to do it herself the third time was because the publishers who took over for him after he passed away slipped up and let it expire. Also, it's worth mentioning that if you look on IMDb, you'll see that to this day, every movie and show that uses Rockabye Baby, is listed on her profile. Even the recent reboot episodes of Animaniacs are there. Granted, she's not officially credited by any of the productions themselves, but still, there's gotta be a reason that every single use of the song gets linked to her, and I'm pretty sure it's not because there's a diehard Effie Canning fan out there desperately trying to cement her legacy as the composer. But oh my God, are we so far into this breakdown, and I haven't even mentioned the theories behind the song's lyrics. Well, better late than never, right? Chapter Two origins. The lyrics of Rockabye Baby are weird. I don't think anyone would deny that, but the question remains, What do they mean? Well, as is the case with pretty much every nursery rhyme, nobody knows for sure, but that hasn't stopped anyone from coming up with theories. I mean, even the very first time it was put into print, the author just couldn't help but put his own interpretation of the moral at the bottom. This may serve as a warning to the proud and ambitious who climb so high that they generally fall at last. It's definitely not a bad guess and a legitimate lesson to teach kids, just ask Icarus, but I don't think that's what the original creator of the rhyme had in mind, so let's consider a few other ideas. One pretty far out theory was suggested by Gerald Massey, an English poet and writer. In his book, Ancient Egypt, The Light of the World, he claimed very confidently the baby described in the nursery rhyme is actually Horus, the god of the sky. The problem is he doesn't really give any evidence for this theory, he just kind of says it matter of factly like he already knows it to be true. While referring to the tree of life, he says, the only infant in the tree who finally supplied the subject of a nursery song, Hushabai Baby, on the treetop was the youthful god whose cradle was the tree of dawn and who says in the ritual, I am the babe, I am the god within the Tamarisk. Now, personally, I don't know how he made this connection and was so confident in it that he didn't feel the need to explain himself. Like, I get that the god said he's a baby in a tree, but that doesn't make him the Hushabye baby by default. Another rather morbid theory says the rhyme was written in a British pub during the glorious revolution of 1688. Supposedly, it refers to King James II's newborn son and expresses the hope that the infant prince would die so the king wouldn't have an heir and could be overthrown. Unbelievable, just imagine what it would be like to hate someone so much that you write a song about wanting their baby to die because in my experience, it's pretty fun. Now, this theory actually does work with the timeline we made in the last section. The revolution happened about 80 years before the rhyme was published in the very same country, and that definitely gives it enough time to be passed around and get popular. But again, no way to confirm it. Just like with Jack and Jill though, I so badly want this theory to be true because I love the idea of a bunch of drunken hooligans singing a lullaby together as a form of protest. Continuing on with that dead baby train of thought, some believe the song to be based on a 1600s ritual where mothers would hang the cradles of their newborn babies from tree branches if they died to see if they could be rocked back to life, I guess. And if the branch broke, it showed the baby was dead weight and in fact, not coming back. Now, personally, I think this one's a bit of a stretch because there's no source for where this ritual took place or what kind of people believed in it. I'm not denying that people from 400 years ago believed in some crazy sh** but I'm gonna have to see some evidence before I endorse this theory. Another less gruesome theory involving babies suggests the song was written by a pilgrim who observed the way Native American women hung their birch bark cradles on low hanging branches of trees so they could work while their baby rocked to sleep. On the one hand, you could argue that whoever came up with this interpretation is taking the song very literally, but this really was something Native American women did. And given the time period, it is possible that a pilgrim could have passed the rhyme on to a relative still in England, and maybe that's how it got Popular and was published there, so it all checks out but it's not the only one that does. What may be my favorite theory of all, and I'm not saying it's the most likely, it's just my favorite, says the song used to be a sea shanty sung by the 17th century British Navy. This one claims that the cradle that's rocking on the treetop is actually the crow's nest rocking on top of the mast, and the baby that's in the cradle is a younger recruit because that's who would always be assigned to look out. There's also the added connection of when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall because you know that if you're in a storm and the bow of the ship breaks, the rest of it's going down two, Cradle and All. Now I've gotta stay unbiased here and point out the unfortunate fact that if the song were being sung in the 17th century, it would probably start with hush a and not rock a by, meaning the boat theory would make less sense. Unless if instead of singing about the crow's nest rocking, they were telling the guy up there to hush, but they would only do that if he was screaming for his life. Then again, maybe he was. It's pretty high up there. But man, do I wish I could prove this one's true. Even more so than the hooligans in the bar, I would love to hear sailors and pirates sing this song as a way to mock their terrified mate in the crow's nest. I mean, just imagine what that would sound like. Imagine.
1: rock a
0: baby on the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, and down come baby, cradle and all. What? No, I didn't hire a bunch of voice actors to sing me a lullaby in a pirate voice? Pfft, that'd be weird. Thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast. We're posting episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So don't forget to sacrifice the five star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to make sure they bless your feed with more mythological and folklore content. If you have any thoughts on this episode you'd like to share, like if you really enjoyed it or are dying to correct my pronunciation of something, hit me up under the Messed Up Origins handles on Twitter and Instagram. And to those who are craving more Messed Up Origins, feel free to check out other episodes of the podcast or look up my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes complete with visual aids and custom-made artwork. Until next time, Solo fam, my name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first.